Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and God, we ask that you would be glorified in our midst today, that our minds would be steadfast upon your goodness and your care, your love. We thank you that you are a God who is kind, a God who is gracious and merciful, a God who is patient. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit to teach us all things. We pray that he would teach us this morning as we open up your word together that your word would be illuminated to our hearts and our minds and through the power of your spirit it would be empowered in our lives to bring you glory that, oh God, we would live as transformed people, people who you've redeemed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I pray heavy this morning because my thoughts have been upon the church, not necessarily just this local gathering of the church, but of the bride of Christ. The church whom Christ laid down his life, who spilt his blood for. The church that locally is called to be a body of believers who are set apart from the world, who are called out of the world by God to be different, to be unlike the world. It would be those who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet we know of story after story and church after church where there are those who live in a manner that is not worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who come together and gather in a local church, but do not live through the power and the strength of their Lord, but live in their own feeble strength, who don't live for the glory of God, but live for their own pursuits and their own pleasures. As my heart was grieving over this, I began to think of what has happened Because surely the gospel still saves. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. And many still come to salvation. But I think of a gospel that is being preached that is unlike the gospel that was preached 2,000 years ago. A gospel that has changed because churches have decided we need to make it more palatable for the hearers. We need to entice them more to come to Christ. We didn't make it more accessible and easier for them. And so churches, the inside of the church begins to look like the world on the outside. If you are visiting here today, our prayer is that what you experience in here is unlike anything that you've experienced outside these walls. Because we are called as God's people to be a holy people. And yet a gospel call may go out throughout this land And it is a gospel that has been changed. It can be referred to as easy believism or cheap grace. It is, you don't want to go to hell, so come to Jesus and continue living the way you want to live. But as long as you confess with your mouth and repeat this prayer or raise your hand or come forward to these steps, all is good with your soul. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and then follow me. I want you to keep that heavy call of the gospel in your mind this morning as we return to this letter to the Ephesians this morning. Those of you that have looked ahead, you said, well, there's not much left in this letter this morning. I want to remind you of eating a wonderful bowl of cereal I like some sweet cereal, like Frosted Flakes or Captain Crunch. Parents, I'm sorry your children are in the room hearing that, because now they're like, hey, the pastor said it, so it's okay, right? No, our kids ate Cheerios. (laughs) But even bite after bite of those scrumptious, sugary cereal, as they come to an end and you take your last bite, many of you know where I'm going right now, there's still something that's left. And it's that cereal milk. (laughs) 
Even after you've taken your final bite, there's that sweet nectar at the end that comes. And that's what we have left for us this morning in this letter to the Ephesians. We have some sweet cereal milk for us to enjoy this morning. If you're a note taker, the title of the sermon this morning is Love Incorruptible. We're looking at the final verses of this letter that the Apostle Paul penned, Ephesians chapter 6. The very tail end, if you have opened up your Bibles there, if you would stand, if you're able this morning for the brief reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul closes his letter starting in verse 21. He writes, So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So reads God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Please be seated. As we come to these final words of this letter this morning, let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul has already penned. And no, we're not going to read the entire thing together this morning, though by the time we finish, you will think you have read the entire thing. Because it is important what has already been written. The first three chapters, Paul lays down foundational theology for the believer of who they are in Christ Jesus. He then spends three additional chapters of practical application of what does that look like in the life of a Christian? How does that theology and that understanding of who we are in Christ, how does that get played out in the life that we live? And I will give you a little Shortcut to that, it is transformation. It is different than before when you were not in Christ. It is the opposite. Instead of pursuing, instead of pursuing selfish ambitions, it's pursuing Christ and his glory. And so the first opening part of this letter, there are all these indicatives of who we are in Christ. And then is laid out the final three chapters of these imperatives, what we must do now that we are in Christ. I want to make sure this morning, because we're going to focus heavy on that latter half, that you don't do these things in Christ so that you might be saved. Salvation is by grace alone and Christ alone. It is not trying to earn God's favor by doing things unto him. It's just the opposite. It's because you are in him that now these works flow from you as we heard earlier in a reading, that we would bear much fruit. It is a byproduct of what has happened to us through the grace of God. So keep that in mind as we get in this this morning, that all of this is a result of God's grace and his love toward those whom Christ died. I'm gonna read it again to us as we just read in verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul begins this closing here in verses 21 and 22. By encouraging the saints in Ephesus that a beloved brother is coming their way. As a matter of fact, will be the messenger of this very letter to them. And that he is going to fill them in in all kinds of details of how Paul is doing and especially of the ministry that is going on there. Perhaps for the very reason of maybe this letter being intercepted and maybe certain people being in trouble for who has responded to the gospel. We don't know, but Paul doesn't include in the letter details of what has gone on in his imprisonment. But it's quite possible that many have come to faith. And as he sends Tychicus to them to tell them of how he's doing, he's going to tell them that God had him in that exact situation of being in prison so that the gospel might go forward. That in his suffering or in his condition, 
that God was still faithful and God was still using him for his glory. So who is Tychicus? We know that according to Acts, he accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey from Greece to Asia. Uh, Paul speaks of him as a, as a beloved brother, a, a friend, a co-laborer in the faith. Uh, we know from, uh, from Titus that he was with Paul in Nicopolis. And from this letter, we know that he was with Paul in his imprisonment in Rome. And we know that Paul sends this brother to Ephesus and Colossae to deliver letters to them. As a matter of fact, it is interesting in this letter in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 22. Those exact words that Paul penned here, he also pens in Colossians. Let me just show it to you real quick. Hold where you are in Ephesians 6 and flip to the right just a little bit to Colossians. At the closing of the letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, if you flip there, look at verse 8. Colossians 4.8, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That is word for word what he wrote to those in Ephesus. Now you say, wait, is Paul plagiarizing himself? No, he's sending Tychicus on the same journey to deliver these letters to the churches and he writes to them that Tychicus will be there and he will encourage your hearts. Those who were concerned for Paul of what was going on with Paul, Paul's telling them everything is not just okay, everything is good and they'll be comforted. That's really not what we're gonna focus this morning. I spoke about that sweet cereal, milk, and that's the very last drops of this most precious letter. Paul closes this letter, where we'll focus on this morning, starting in verse 23. He says, peace, back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul includes four wonderful gospel words in this benediction. And they are themes throughout this letter to the Ephesians. Peace, love, faith, and grace. You see them all there in this closing. And there's some of the four most precious words that we will ever hear. And the foundation of those words is grace. We need to understand grace that without grace, there would be no faith. And without faith, there would be no love and no peace. That the foundation is grace. What is grace? Grace is defined as the unmerited favor of God towards those who rightly deserve his wrath. Now put all that together because I hear people often define grace as simply the unmerited favor of God. Further than that, the unmerited favor of God to those who rightly deserve his wrath. Now, we've done this before, and I don't want you to raise your hand or jump out of your seat, but is anybody a sinner here today? We are all rightly deserving of the wrath of God, but because of the grace of God, he put that upon his son, Jesus, that he would pay the penalty for the sins of all those who would believe in him. Paul speaks of grace 12 times in this letter to the Ephesians. I want you to track through them with me, just several of them. I'm not going to go through all 12 of them, but go back to the opening of this letter, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we see in verse 7, we read, In him, speaking of Christ... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That we have forgiveness of sins because of his grace. Grace is the foundation. Look at chapter two with me. Chapter two, verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved. This is so important for our study this morning because we are so quick to jump into a works-based relationship with God when it is based upon grace. It is what Christ has done for the believer. And so by grace you have been saved. A few verses later, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is from the grace of God. It is not because somehow God looked down into the future and said, well, that person's going to be pretty good and that person's going to be pretty good and that person's going to be this or that. It's because of his grace, that he's poured out his grace and he's poured out his mercy on whom he has chosen. But we see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is completely a work of God. Salvation is all about him. That our side is we are sinners in need of a savior. And it was through Jesus Christ who took on the form of a man and came to earth to seek and to save that which is lost. It is him who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he calls everyone to repent and to believe so that they can receive forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life. But even these are the results of grace. We saw in Ephesians 2.8 that, that faith is a gift from God. It's a demonstration of his grace towards sinners. And so one of these gospel words that Paul uses over and over is this word faith. He uses it eight times in this letter. And to have faith, what does that mean? Say you have faith in Christ. It's to believe who he is and what he has done. It is to trust in who he is and what he has done. It is trusting God alone for salvation. Trusting in the complete and finished work of Christ alone for salvation. It's trusting in Christ's sinless life his substitutionary death, and his validating resurrection from the grave. The results of faith. There's some byproducts that come out of it that Paul unpacks here, and one of them is peace that he speaks of seven times in this letter. In the closing, you'll see here at the end of Ephesians, he says, peace be to the brothers. That's peace be to the brothers and the sisters. Peace be to the saints in the church. So he's speaking about a peace specifically there at the end that's amongst believers. But he's clearly demonstrated throughout this letter that we cannot have peace with one another unless we have peace with God. And that peace with God only comes through Jesus Christ. It is through the Son of God, through Jesus, that the wrath of God has been satisfied and the sinner is no longer an enemy of God. I think so often we skim over the gospel, even as, as believers, we think it's for the unbeliever, but we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily to be reminded of the gospel. We now have peace with God and because we have peace with God, we can praise God that all praise would be to God. That everyone who has repented and believed in the gospel is because God has poured out his grace upon them. That he receives all honor and glory. That, I'm sorry, this might strike a nerve to some of you, but if you have repented and trusted in Christ, that's not because it was the best decision you ever made. It is because of the mercy and grace of God that has been poured out upon your life that he has chosen you and drawn you unto himself. It's only through Christ that even amongst ourselves that we can be at peace with one another. 
Paul puts it very plainly in Ephesians 2.14. Speaking of Christ, he says, he himself is our peace. There is no other peace outside of Jesus Christ. He is the basis for all peace. And if he is peace amongst the brethren, that means there are no more divisions. There's no more Gentile and Jew, as Paul declares. There's no more male and female. There's no more this and that, that we are one in Christ. And since we are one in Christ, we have peace with one another. So just through several of those gospel words, we've seen that grace is foundational. It is foundational to everything else that we're going to pack on top of it. Without grace, none of these other things will take place. It is the grace of God that we would even experience an incorruptible love from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That as we will see that term, love incorruptible, that Paul is referring to the believer. That we would respond to our good God, our great God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with a type of love that he has first loved us with. So that's where we find ourselves. And this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. At the very end of this, the very last sip of that cereal milk is right here. Verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Out of all these gospel words that we spoke of this morning, the one that Paul spoke of the most in this letter to the Ephesians is love. 14 times. He has used this term love in this letter. He has spoken of God's love for believers. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Remember that big but God? Remember though we were dead in our trespasses and sins? And then verse 4 of chapter 2 is, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul writes of God's love for believers. He also writes of Christ's love for believers. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. As he prays for the saints there, he says that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God, that they would know the love of Christ. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, we see the command that we're to walk in love as Christ loved us. This is so important. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that we're to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Love. This type of love that Paul speaks of in chapter 5 is the type of love that we're going to unpack shortly because we are told we're to love Jesus with this type of love. What does that look like? How, how is that to be done? Paul continues to unpack this idea of love that God loves the believer. Christ loves the believer. Christ gave himself as a demonstration of his love to the believer but he also says believers are to love one another. What kind of love? Is it the love when people around me are doing the things I like? And so I demonstrate love to them? Is that the kind of love that Christ demonstrated to us? Now, many of you know that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the type of love that Paul is getting at, that we're to have this love for one another. He opens up the epistle in chapter one, verse 15, talking about the love that they had demonstrated in this church one to another. He commands them in chapter four that they are to bear with one another in love. Do you know if you have to bear with one another, that means there are difficult things going on and difficult people. Do you know of any difficult people? Maybe they're in your home. Maybe they're at your work. Maybe they're at your school. Or maybe they're in your church. Or as some of you are pointing, maybe they're all those. 
Man, is that we would bear with one another in love. Paul goes on and he speaks directly to husbands. And he tells believing husbands that they are to love their wives. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says again in that same chapter, verse 28, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And again in that chapter, verse 33, it says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Over and over again, Paul's talking about love. He goes five times and he speaks of just general love amongst the saints. But here at the close of this letter, he speaks of a believer's love for Christ. And I think this is foundational to all those other forms of love and, and avenues of love. That if our love isn't utmost for Christ first, then there isn't genuine love for one another. That it's when we love Christ as he loved us, that then we can love others the way that Christ has loved us. It is interesting that this is the only place that Paul has written about a believer's love for Christ. It's the only place that it's made explicit. It's very clear this is about our love for Christ. And so the very ending of this letter, after all these rich truths and glorious things that Paul has recorded, he focuses the end on the believer's relationship and commitment to Christ. So I'll read it again. Verse 24, Ephesians chapter 6. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What does that mean? Like, what does that look like? Love incorruptible. A love that is undying. A love that is endless. It means a sincere love. A genuine love. It is a love that is from a pure heart that is wholehearted in pursuing Christ. It is not from somebody who is split between loving Christ and loving themselves. It is a love that is fueled by the grace of God. It is a love that is a response to the love, the incorruptible love that Christ has demonstrated for them. This love that Paul speaks of is a love that only those who understand how much they have been forgiven are able to display. So I ask you this morning, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus this morning, do you understand how much you have been forgiven in Christ? Because he who is forgiven much loves much. But if you are here this morning puffed up and proud, thinking, I'm pretty good, I'm not that bad, and I'm not as bad as that person or that person, I challenge you to just simply look at the Ten Commandments and tell me how you stand up against those. That in the eyes of God, we have all sinned against him who is holy and righteous. And for thus, us who are now in Christ Jesus, we have been forgiven much. So the love that Paul is writing about here, about loving the Lord, is a complete devotion to Christ. And this is of utmost important that he brings it right to a head at the very end. Like, what's the most important thing? As a Christian, what's the most important thing to do now? I hear so many say, you know what? The Bible's just like a big old book of do's and don'ts. Jesus was asked the question. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 38, someone in the crowd declared they're a lawyer. They ask Jesus a question to test him. And they say, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. What is it? 
to love God, to love him above all else, to be devoted to him above all else. This is what Paul is getting at here, that we're to love our Lord with all of our being. Paul describes it as love incorruptible. You know, it's interesting that Paul writes this only to the church in Ephesus that he gives this charge, which obviously carries over to us today. But interestingly enough, it was this church in Ephesus that sadly later in the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses this church. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and into 5, Jesus says this to this church. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. This is the same church. Jesus says, you've abandoned your love. The love you had at first, your love for Christ is gone. It's interesting how he correlates the love for Christ when he says you need to repent and return to doing the works. Well, what does that mean? There's a correlation between saying that we love Christ and what fruit would come out of that. You know, words can be cheap. But actions, what flows from the heart, what comes forth is evidence of where truth exists. So Jesus commanded them, repent and do the works that they once did. Jesus himself clearly defined that to love him is to obey him. To love him is to obey him. I mean, just think about this. Just as a child demonstrates love to his parents by obeying them, so do children of God demonstrate love for God by obeying him. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of John? John chapter 14. John chapter 14, Jesus is going to make this real clear. John chapter 14, if you would look down to verse 15. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will Keep my commandments. Notice there's no other contingencies, nothing else attached to that. It is, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You say, well, maybe he meant something different there. Maybe, maybe he was speaking of something else. Okay, let's let him say it again then. Let's go down to verse 21. Verse 21 of John 14. Jesus says again, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. So what does he say? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Still not convinced? Go down a couple more verses. Verse 23. Jesus answers and says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. If you love him, you'll obey him. Jesus makes it very clear. And in case that order doesn't work for us as hearers, Jesus then flips it around. Look at verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It's like, like, which way do you want to hear this? Do you want it this way? Do you want it that way? It's the same message. If we love Christ, that is going to be demonstrated by an obedience for Christ. That the grace of God is going to fuel that devotion to God. Paul the Apostle would say this. I'll read it to you. It's a quick little verse. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. Paul the Apostle says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Keep that in mind. Because it's easy to look at other people 
and to judge other people in their sin and what they're doing. You're out on the street, you see someone doing something totally of the world, and you think, hey, gospel opportunity. You go and you present Christ, like, hey, I'm saved. I know Jesus. I love Jesus. Why did you think they didn't love Jesus? Because of the fruit. It wasn't good fruit of what they were doing. For those who love Christ, it should be evident that they are bearing good fruit. Now, pause, time out. Some of you just think, wait, I thought we started with this first gospel word, grace. And I thought it was all about grace. I Meaning it's all about what Christ has done in his perfection, not about what we do. That is true. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, and faith alone. But what is grace? And how do we understand grace? We defined it. We know it's God's unmerited favor to those who rightly deserve his wrath. But what happens when someone receives the grace of God? Like, like what does that look like in their lives? I want you to find Titus. Find Titus. And if you mark your Bibles up, now's a good time to mark up some verses. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is when Christ came, the grace of God appeared through Christ. But look at what the grace does. Look at verse 12. This grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember I started off this morning talking about just grieving over the fact of the church, especially the church in America, is full of people who have come to faith according to a, a cheap grace or an easy believism, which is made tons of false converts. People will say, well, I know Christ, but there's no evidence of Christ in them. That they profess the name, but there are no good works coming out of them. There's no evidence, no fruit that they are regenerate, that they are actually Christ. We read here in Titus that this grace that we so often speak of is a grace that should be active in every single believer. It is a grace that's causing us to put off the things of the old self and to put on Christ. It is a grace that says, deny self, please God. It is a grace that says, stop loving yourself and love Jesus. This is the grace that is spoken of. And so Paul says at the end of Ephesians that we're to love Jesus with love incorruptible. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, knowing that the grace of God is intended to transform us, to make us a new creation, that the church, that Christ's church, would be one that is evidenced by those who are bearing much fruit for Christ, that there's works of salvation going on in them, that you could see they are doing things that are supernatural. Look, we think when Jesus says you could move a mountain, if you have faith of a mustard seed, and we think, oh, well, I don't need to move a mountain. Yeah, but do you need to forgive somebody? We're commanded to love as Christ loved. Are you commanded to love those who we say are unlovable? Who we say don't receive love? Who won't respond in love? Well, if this faith that Jesus speaks of can move mountains, guess what? It can also help you to love, quote unquote, the unlovable. To produce works of the spirit of God that bring glory to God. So love incorruptible is an all-in love. What does that mean? It means all in for Christ. It's not about me anymore. It's now about the one who has redeemed me. It's about the one who has forgiven me. It's about the one who has given me life. So the eyes are taken from me and now they're put on Christ. 
that I would get everything for the sake of Christ, to obey him at whatever cost. Paul has put this in very practical terms. Chapters four through six, he has laid out very practical things of what this love looks like. And this love does not come natural to you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't wake up out of bed and just start floating around. (laughs) You are commanded to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The Christian life nowhere in the Bible has said, well, that's just really easy. You just go through the motions and it'll all be good. It is an act of faith to constantly pursue him and his strength and his wisdom. And so turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. Paul, in very practical terms, shows what is good fruit look like? What are we to do as Christians? By the way, impossible to do this in your flesh. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, what we are about to read is impossible for you to do. But... If you have been redeemed and you have been forgiven and you have been given a new heart and have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, then you have a full access to everything of heaven to help you do everything that is commanded here. You have the fullness of Christ to help you fulfill the words of Christ. That there is no longer an excuse of I can't. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Are you ready? If anything that I've said so far has not hurt a little bit, it's about to get a little dicier. Because now we're going to take all of that knowledge and we're going to put it in application. Okay? So if you get up and walk out right now, it looks kind of weird. So hang on. Here we go. Chapter 4 of Ephesians. The application. Paul writes... In the beginning of chapter four, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, now stop there out of a love for the Lord, with the love that he has loved us, we are now commanded. Paul is pleading with them. Why would he plead with them and with us? Because it doesn't come just naturally. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what does that look like? It means we need to be humble. And I don't know about you, but I don't wake up the most humble person first thing in the morning. I need to cry out to God for his strength. I need to cry out to God and my dependence upon him for all things. But we're to walk in humility. We're also to walk in gentleness. Gentleness means being more focused about the other person than yourself. Patience, the same way. You see, the part here is bearing with one another in love. All right, we could stop there and study that for a whole sermon this morning, as I think we have in the past. But we're going to keep going. Look down to verse 17. Out of our love for Jesus, because of his incorruptible love towards us, out of our love for him, verse 17 says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Those are the unbelievers. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Big focus here is just on sexuality. That we're no longer to act like the world acts and think like the world thinks. And the different media and programs and TV and movies and music that would speak of sexual sin like it's no big deal. These things should not even be named among us that we're to flee from these things out of our love for Jesus. Look down to verse 20. 
Paul says, that's not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him or were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is out of a demonstration of love for God that we put off our old self and put on Christ. That we seek him, we ask him for help, that we might be able to do his will, that we might know his will, that we would be empowered to do it. Look, if you are waiting till the day that you want to do God's will, you're going to be waiting a long time because it is contrary to our flesh. Instead, we must seek him and ask him to help. He goes through all these practical things, starting in verse 25. He says, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. He says, verse 26, be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I'm gonna stop real quick. What Paul is pointing out is the life that is lived in Christ is completely the opposite of what it used to be. The one who used to steal now gets a job, not only so he can have something, but so he can share with others. The opposite of stealing. The one that used to lie and make up all kinds of stories is now speaking the truth. There's transformation through the grace of God in the lives of the believer. That's what's being encouraged throughout these verses. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is building, for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So every part of us is being renewed and transformed. Even our speech, things that we once thought were funny and we would make jokes about. Now we're looking for things that would build people up in Christ, that would stir their holy affections for Christ. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you see the opposites there? It's put away the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the clamor. And instead, put on Christ, put on tenderness, put on forgiveness. To forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. I don't know about you, but I'm not worthy of the forgiveness of Christ. I don't deserve the forgiveness of Christ. I'm sorry if I offend you, but you don't either. You don't deserve it. And so forgiveness is not based upon whether or not the person deserves it or not. It's because we have been forgiven by God, then we are to forgive others as well. Paul continues, out of your love for Jesus, chapter five, verse one, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What does Christ's love look like for us? Death on a cross. Complete sacrifice. So the love that we are to demonstrate to others is a death to ourselves, so it's a true demonstration of love to somebody else. It is not about appealing to our own pleasures and our own comforts. It's about dying to this flesh and walking in Christ's love. He then goes through a whole section here about sexual immorality and warning those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Saying, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, sexual immorality should have nothing to do with your life. The call here is that you are to be different than the world and no longer go back into the things of the world. He says in verse seven, not even to be a, a partner with them, to even speak of the things they do in darkness. And go all the way down to chapter five, verse 15. Out of your love for Jesus, look carefully, verse 15, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. It means don't just go through the motions, but seek Christ. 
Seek what he desires. Be busy about his business. Be empowered to do his will. Paul then unpacks in here, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. He says, when you, when you walk by the Spirit, there's going to be a joyful countenance and you'll be singing songs, spiritual songs and hymns and that's how you're going to be addressing one another. And then 21, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is just the one another. That we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul gets even more practical. He says, out of your love for Christ, and he speaks to the wives. In verse 22 of chapter 5, out of your love for Jesus, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Not because they are worthy, but because Christ is. But the command here is out of your love, the overflow for Jesus, that the reason that, ladies, you would submit to your husbands is because it honors Christ. And because he is the one that you're trying to live and pursue and to please, that's why you do it. Not because the guy that you married that you thought he was going to be Superman turned out to be a knucklehead. And you go, he's not worthy of that. He's not. But Christ is. And I love that, you know, Paul, Paul wraps that up for the wives, like right here. And then he turns to the husbands and goes like this. And so husbands, as you sat there and said, ha, tell them, tell them. Well, husbands, out of your genuine love for Christ, Paul continues in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Stop there. What kind of love is it? Sacrificial. Completely sacrificial. Not based upon what is coming back. Not based upon their response. Not based upon, oh, they said they liked that or didn't like it. Doesn't matter if they did what you want or didn't do what they want. You're to love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul writes that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the words so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Stop there. Man, I can speak from a point of view of a man and of a husband. We have selfish tendencies. We think we can do something because we want a certain response and we want to see if we can get that back from our wives. Paul makes it very clear that our biggest and most important purpose in the way we serve our wives is to help her be more like Christ. That's the goal, is to love her in a manner that is of Christ, that she would grow in the grace of Christ. It is not so that, oh, now she's gonna do this for me or do that or she's gonna do that. It's so that she would learn to love Christ more. In the same way, husbands, verse 28, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why? Because out of our love for Christ, that love incorruptible, these are the things that we do through the strength of Christ, through the assistance of Christ. And out of your love for Jesus, children, are you, any children here? Oh, I'm sorry, we're coming to you now. Paul doesn't forget about you. In chapter 6, verse 1, out of your love for Jesus, he says, in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Children, do you claim and profess to know Jesus? And do you profess to love Christ? 
then through his strength and through his might and for his glory, you are to obey your parents. Not only when they tell you things that you want to do, but especially when you don't want to do them and you don't like the things they are asking you to do. To obey. And out of your love for Jesus, fathers, you are addressed here as well. In verse four, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's lots of practical application here. Everything that Paul has written from the beginning of chapter four to right here in chapter six is practical application of what it means when I say I love Jesus. Because to love Christ is to obey Christ. And so pause, pump the brakes real quick. Consider your own life. Consider your own profession of faith and your own love for Christ. What does that look like? What does it look like in your home? What does it look like in your workforce? What does it look like in your school? What does it look like in your community? What does it look like in your church? What does your love for Jesus look like? Because Paul has just described what love incorruptible looks like. And it is impossible to live out in your flesh. If you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ, meaning you have not repented and trusted in Christ, these things are impossible for you to do. Oh, you could try it like maybe for a night, for a week, like a New Year's resolution. It'll last for a week or two and then you'll be right back to what it was. But because of the promise of Christ and the commands of Christ, those of us who are in Christ have the fullness of Christ to do what he's asked us to do. That there's no excuses not to do them. To love him with love incorruptible means to constantly ask him for his strength. Even for the desire to do the things that we don't want to do. How many times do we get stuck like, I'm not going to do it. I know I'm supposed to, but I'm not going to. That is not because I cannot. It is not that I don't have the ability to. It's because I ask not and I desire not. To love Jesus with a love incorruptible is to put him first. It's to pursue him with all that we are. It's submitting to his will, even when we think the recipient of the good works he's asking me to do is not worthy of them because Christ is worthy of them. If we say we love the Lord, may it be sincere, may it be undying, may it be in an incorruptible love. May it be this morning as we read from Ephesians 4 through 6 that God's word would penetrate and poke at your heart in areas where you know, you know what? I'm not submitting to that part of the will of God and I'm pushing back and I'm resisting and I don't want that. May it be that the spirit of God conforms your will into his will. And may it be that you know that you have the resources of heaven available to you to do the will of God, to demonstrate sincere, undying, incorruptible love to Christ. Would you be willing to ask him to do his will and to empower you to do what you think is impossible, to do what you maybe you don't want to do? But would you be willing to submit to the will of God out of the love of God? Because if you do, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you could ask or think. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you and can confess that it is easy for our ears to hear about your love for us. It is easy to hear about your forgiveness towards us. It is easy to hear about your grace towards us and your mercy towards us. God, it is much harder to hear that now through what we have received and been empowered by your spirit to do, that we're now to extend that same love and grace 
and mercy to others. Father, I pray that your spirit would empower your word to your people this morning. That in the details of our lives, in the areas that we know right now that your spirit has revealed to us that we are not submitting to your will. That we would cry out to you and say, God, help me to do your will. Help me to desire your will. Help me to repent and turn from me and my desires and my comforts and my pleasures. And help me to put on Christ Jesus. Father, we would turn to you in thanksgiving knowing that, God, you will equip us and empower us to do all that you've commanded us to do. But this is not to be done in our own strength, but it is done through you. Father, thank you for this section of Ephesians that would begin with the command for us to be strengthened in you and the power of your might to put on your armor, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to make no provision for the flesh. Oh God, I pray that you would work mightily in our lives for your glory, for your namesake. God, I pray for this church as a whole, as we spoke of just churches across this nation that profess the name of Christ, but act in a manner that is not worthy of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would not only convict us of sin, but you would gift us with repentance and faith to turn and to seek you and to live according to your spirit. That this church would live in, in unity and would be a gospel witness to the community around us. That those who gather here are those who have been transformed by the grace of God. Those who have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. That you would enable us, O oh God, to love with a love that's incorruptible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.